In this Lenten season, we're taking four weeks to look at this idea of turning back to God, of what would otherwise be called as repentance, this process of turning away from what we've been following, away from our own ways, and turning back to God and His ways. And the reason why this is so important is because certainly as, as Christians, as those who, who take our, our, our understanding of the world and of truth out of the Bible, out of the, this, this, this book, we believe that God is, is life for us and that apart from Him, we can try everything in the world and find ourselves in futility and in frustration. But that God is life. And so this idea of turning back to God, of, of repenting, of turning around, means everything for us as human beings, turning back to Him. Last week, we looked at the idea of two awarenesses that form the foundation for any attempt to turn back to God. And these two awarenesses were first the awareness of our own sin, and then secondly, the awareness of the nature and character of God as one who, is, who has steadfast love and abundant mercy, a God who's longing for His people to turn back to Him and always standing ready for them to turn back to him. And we saw that in the first two verses of Psalm 51, that David's appealing to, to the nature of God as the source of his petition, as the source of his cry and of his turning back. Yesterday, we were at a retreat together down in Hingham. Uh, many of us were. And we, throughout the day, and really throughout the, the, the history of this church plant, which has been going now for, a, I suppose, a year and a half, um, We've been talking about the, the importance of God to be the one to build the house out of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. And we talked about that repeatedly yesterday, that this need that we have for God to do the work that God alone can do and that we're not able to do it. And today, as we look at Psalm 51 verses 3, th- 3 through 6, we see the reality of why this is the case. Why is it that we need God to build the house? Why is it that we need Someone from outside, a power from outside to come in and to rescue and to build, to grow, to do what only he can do. And we see that in these verses that we're going to look at tonight. Um, And the short answer is because of sin. So we talked last week about the awareness of our sin, uh, looking at that story of Nathan coming to David, this gift of God's grace to come to him and say, you are the man who's found himself in these ways. David having... Um, committed these three major sins of adultery, of murder, and of coveting. Three of the Ten Commandments that God had given. But we move from awareness last week to a deepening this week of ownership. Ownership of our sin. Ownership of of our waywardness. Now, in order to understand this, we have to first ask this question, what is sin? It's, it's not a, a word that we love to use in our culture today, if you've been listening at all, um, if you've been kind of had your ear to the ground in contemporary culture. We don't like to talk about this word sin. It's, it's something, and people oftentimes they start to cringe, even in the church, when we use this word sin. What is sin? Um, we live in a culture that doesn't like to call things wrong. This was illustrated for me in my life by um, Chloe's first year in public school in the District of Columbia. We moved here from Washington, D.C., uh, not quite a year ago now. And uh, in Miss Copeland's kindergarten class, when the kids did something wrong, and uh, when they did something right, they called it doing something negative or something positive. This is something, you know, you made a positive choice or you made a negative choice, but there wasn't a freedom in that context in the classroom to talk about you did something wrong or you did something right. And that's... Um, 
I suppose just a mini, uh, a small micro example of a macro problem in our world today that we are so gun shy to call anything right or wrong. And part of the reason for that is because we live in a culture that prioritizes tolerance and what tolerance has come to mean is to say that you can't have an objective standard for right and wrong. Well, that would be a kind of elementary understanding of it, but I think we all feel that at some level and resonate with that. Um, one Christian made an essay in the early 90s in kind of a mockery of this and said, "God be." the title of the essay was, God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. <laughs> we come up with all kinds of different ways to talk about our issue of doing wrong. So what is sin? Uh, David uses three words in this psalm. He uses actually four, but we'll look at three that describe the reality of what sin is for us to understand. He uses this word of falling short. That's the word for sin, basically, in the Hebrew language. It's a falling short or missing the mark, not quite reaching the destination. So that's one. He uses the word transgression, which is, indicates a, a willful rebellion, a willful turning away. And then he uses this word iniquity which implies a, a deviation from or a perversion of something. And then the guilt that results uh, from that deviation or perversion. Now, all three of these, missing the mark or falling short, willful rebellion or deviation and perversion, imply one thing. They imply that there is a standard. They imply that there's a mark to be missed. There's a standard to be attained. There is, in another sense, a design to be fulfilled. And given that there's a standard or there is a design, there is also a standard giver or a design, a designer. There is, there is this, this mark for which you and I have been created as those who have been made in the image of God. Sin, in other words, is never something that can be understood as an independent field of study. Sin is not something that, that has an existence outside of something else. And so in order to understand the nature of sin, we have to understand the nature first of the design or of the standard or of the designer. And it's only when we understand that that, that we can then begin to understand the tragedy and the folly and the futility of this thing that we call sin in the church. Um, let me make a point real quick to say that therefore, for those of us who are seeking to engage the world in a conversation about the good news of what God has done in Jesus, we can't start, and I think sometimes the church makes this, this great mistake, we can't start with, with trying to convince somebody that they're just evil and bad. Um, and sometimes that's the, way, that's the way people in the church have done this. It's, it's, you just kind of go out and you start just lot, like throwing these stones and these rocks at people and they don't, understand, they don't have any context in which to hear that. And so it's important to recognize that, that any attempt at engaging the culture, any attempt at engaging um, someone from outside of the church, and maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're asking these questions from outside, kind of looking at what the church is about. Well, it doesn't make any sense apart from first understanding that, that there is a, a good and holy God who's made a good and wonderful and, and, and beautiful world and who's put a stamp of his image upon us as his creatures and who's longing for us as his people to live in such a way that we were created and designed to live. And apart from understanding that wonderful picture of creation, then the hard news of sin makes absolutely no sense. 
There's no context for understanding it. So first, we have to understand this, this design, that's this, this wonderful design that's for the world in a holistic sense, but then in a very personal and particular way is for you. From whatever culture, from whatever socioeconomic background, from whatever ethnicity, it's for you. And it means something for you. It's, it's deeply important for you and for me. So, so sin is understood in, in contrast to this design and to this mark. So let me just say a couple other things about sin. First, sin is contrary in every way to God. Sin is a perversion. It's a pollution. It's a disintegration of everything that God has made and of the, the good things which he longs for in his world. J.I. Packer defines sin in this way. He says, sin may be comprehensively defined as lack of conformity to the law of God in act, habit, attitude, outlook, disposition, motivation, and mode of existence. Pretty comprehensive definition of every aspect of human life that is uh, a transgression, a movement away from the design and the standard and the law that God has written into the world, written into the code of the world. Now, this can cover everything. This covers um, anything from, from cheating on your taxes, that season's coming up, you know, just kind of fudging a little bit here and there, um, to, to just, just uh, to committing adultery, to things as, 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 as kind of insidious as envy and jealousy in the heart, um, to just kind of white lies here and there. This covers everything that you can think of that runs contrary to, to God and his ways. One uh, theologian describes sin as this, the culpable disturbance of shalom. God's shalom, God's design for blessing and, and peace in the world that he has made. It's a culpable disturbance of that in any number of ways. So sin is this alliance with, it's this collusion with, the anti-God power in the world. It's an enlistment in the rebellion, the rebellious push away from this designer and this, this, this one who has created all things. And it's our coming into agreement with that anti-God power in any number of ways. But it's not just contrary to God. It's contrary to humankind. So the apple on the tree always promises Blessing, prosperity, growth, uh, uh, joy, peace. It always promises these things. But the reality is, is that the only thing that can deliver those things is God himself and a, a life lived in accordance with those ways that he's designed. So when we sin, when we walk in rebellion, we're actually doing something that's contrary to our own well-being and health. Despite all promises to the contrary. Because the standard, the standard, the design that God has made is really good for us. It's good for us. And so a movement away from it is a movement towards something that's bad for us. So, it enters, so in through sin enters things like duplicity, deception, hurt, violence, revenge, frustration, and a whole host of other things that bear down on us day in and day out. So that's what sin is. So this is how we then understand verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 51. Four, David says, For I know my transgressions, 
and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. For I know my transgressions. There's a knowing that's a kind of, there's knowing and then there's knowing. There's knowing that's this kind of casual awareness, this kind of nonchalant tip of the hat to, to the fact that, yeah, I'm not perfect. You know, everybody has their problems. Everybody makes mistakes, miscalculations, whatever they are. There's a kind of knowing like that. There's a knowing that probably most of us could agree with. And then there's a knowing. There's the knowing of verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There's a sense in which there is a, a crushed nature to this, to this man as he's writing these words. There's a, there's a, there's a, a tragedy that's understood. There's a folly that's understood. There, there's, a, there's a shortcoming here that's deeply understood and embraced and held ever before me. And my sin is ever before me. This is something that David knows deep in his heart. And he knows it not just as this kind of trivial, casual thing, but as, as this collusion with the rebellious power in the world against God. The God who made him, the God who called him, the God who helped him defeat Goliath, the God who has done all of these wonderful things in his life. There's no mumbling here in David's voice in his writing. There's no sidestepping. There's no excusing. So there, it leaves us with this question, do we know? in our own lives? Do we know our sin? Do we know our transgressions? Do we know the fact that, that, that we have, have walked in a way that's against these standards and this design? And that we don't just do it once and we don't just do it twice, but we do it every day, again and again and again. David says in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. You kind of look at that and you go, well, wait a second, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about these other people in his life? And, and of course, sin always has these kind of effects that, that, that ricochet out from it into all kinds of different directions. But, but understood as a deviation, understood as a perversion, understood as a missing of the mark, understood as a rebellion, sin is always first and foremost against God. Unless we understand uh, what we've just talked about, we won't understand the, the, the nature of sin, that it's first and foremost against God himself. And I just wonder sometimes, let me just ask this question first. When, when, when we walk in sin, what is it that pains us most? You know, our, our culture is big about shame and really little about guilt right now. We're big about shame. Shame is the thing that, that, that we incur in, in front of other people because of our sin, because of our, our fallenness, because of our brokenness. And sometimes I think, you know, we, we get that really well. And that's something that, that, that really causes us grief because of the fact that it's, it's, it's destroying our reputation. But in, in this true biblical view of turning back to God and of repentance, there is a first and foremost identification that sin is against God himself and a deep internalizing of the offense that that is to the one who made us. Against you and you only have I sinned, so that what? You may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David agrees that he has, and this is incredibly important, he has no claim upon God. No claim, no entitlement, no, there is no there's no ability in David to say to God, you owe me something. You deserve, I deserve something from you. 
And how often do we walk around in the world with that sense of, of God, you owe me. God, you took me through that, but you really owe me this. And we, we play this game with God that's saying, God, you deserve, I deserve something better from you. And the reality of, of, of true biblical repentance is coming to this place of saying, no, God owes me nothing. I have no claim upon him. Pascal said it this way. He said, true conversion consists in self-annihilation before the universal being whom we have so often vexed and who is perfectly entitled to destroy us at any moment. In recognizing that we can do nothing without him and that we have deserved nothing but his disfavor. So that's the nature of verses 3 and 4 of his ownership of his sin. But there's always this temptation, even in the midst of owning our sin, and and we all face this all the time, of the next thought in our minds is, but I can do something to get out of this. I can do something to, 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 to make this better. And so the next thing that David turns to in verse 5 is he confesses, in addition to his overt sin, his moral impotence, his inability to do anything about the indictment against him from God. This is, this is, in other words, David saying, not an anomaly in my life. This is not just a random act that happened um, in an otherwise pure existence. But this This sinfulness, the sin that I've committed is utterly consistent with my nature and my being. And how does he say it in verse 5? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's saying I'm powerless to break out of this. There is no option here for me to be the one to rescue myself. I can't get out of this. I was brought forth in this way. And here we touch upon this uh, uh, long-hated doctrine of original sin in the Christian tradition, which says this, that in our first father and mother and Adam and Eve, that our nature, because of their sin, was polluted in such a way as to make us uh, holy and utterly, not utterly, holy and to every extent, depraved in some way. What it is to say is to say that, that, that sin and this power of going against God has touched every aspect of our being. It's about the extent of its, of its sweep through our person. Not that we are the, the baddest that we can be, but that every part of who we are has been touched in some way by this power of sin that's lurking in us. So it's not of not one of extent, but or not, not something of degree, but something of extent that we have been um, made captive to this. And there's this idea in, out of this doctrine of original sin that, that we are powerless to rescue ourselves, that our will is in bondage, and that a hundred times out of a hundred, apart from the intervention of a gracious God, that we can't rescue, we can't get out. This is something that the world, um, that, that experience, that empirical reality proves to us again and again and again. Listen to, the, listen to these words. I'll tell you who they're by after I read them. He says, In judging myself, I shall try to be as harsh as truth as I also want others to be. 
For it is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him, who, as I fully know, governs every breath of life and whose offspring I am. I know that it is the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. Gandhi. This 20th century example of a holy man, not obviously from the Christian tradition, adding his voice to, to the myriads of voices that affirm this reality of something deeply broken, something deeply polluted about our nature that we cannot escape. Theologian says this, although Christians of various theological orientations differ on central issues in the doctrine of original sin, they agree on the universe, universality, solidarity, stubbornness, and historical momentum of sin. That is to say, all serious Christians subscribe to the generic doctrine of corruption, the centerpiece of which is the claim that even when they are good in important ways, human beings are not sound. Human beings are not sound. The myth of the modern era is that progress is on the march, that we are improving, that as a species, human beings are evolving to greater and greater levels of good and blessing and prosperity. We live obviously more, that, that, that myth has begun to break obviously from the 20th century in the examples of, of the atomic bomb and the Holocaust and these things. So much so, and I've said this before, that a 20th century German a sociologist said that progress is from the sling to the atom bomb. But there is this sense in our world that in order to get out of the situation, the predicament that we find ourselves in, that we just need to educate ourselves more. We just need to, 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 to improve in technology and our mastery over nature. We just need to do these things. And the reality of David's words here is to say, these things are futile in my situation. These things are futile in my situation. So we turn to the only place that we can turn. Owning our sin and acknowledging our inability to rescue ourselves because of our participation in the fallenness of human nature. We turn to the only place that we can turn. To the God who justly is able to destroy us and annihilate us, but who has revealed himself to be a God of mercy, a God of forgiveness, and a God of grace. Most of all in the cross of Jesus. He said, I, I've dealt with the problem in a way that nothing else that you attempt to deal with the problem with will do. And so Paul says these words in Romans 5 that where sin increase, increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Listen to these words. Standing in the deep hole of sin and death, David looked up and saw the stars of God's grace that those who stand in the noonday brightness of their own righteousness can never discern. This is the only way forward in life. This is the only way to be restored to the design for which we were made. This is the only way to be able to not fall short and to deviate and to pollute and to pervert. It is this way of casting ourselves down upon the grace and the mercy of God, of crying out to God for mercy 
and grace. As we read in James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's this way of ownership of our sin and acknowledgement and agreement with God's judgment over our sin that leads to the way of forgiveness and mercy. And it's only those who see this and own it deeply who will then also see the glories and the wonders of the grace of God in Jesus. And so as part of our Lenten exploration of repentance and looking at Psalm 51, we must come to this place of seeing, as we sung earlier, that none but Jesus, none but Jesus, can do helpless sinners good. And to identify with that last phrase, not in a casual passing, but in a deep and gut-wrenching acknowledgement of the folly and the tragedy and of my complicitness in all that this is in the world. Amen.